0: Our next talk is coming from Tim Dixon. Um, Tim's joining us now. Hi, Tim. Good to see you. And you. Um, thanks, for, thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us. And you're uh, going to be talking to us today about moving beyond pixels, um, particularly in, in startups. Tim, if you're ready, I'll I'll hand over to you. Good. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks for much. And I realised, Tim, uh, I, I just read out the wrong intro. You're talking was about being a, a, a philosopher. Um, yes. <laughs> so Tell it's like, slightly different. Um, so yeah, this. Uh, thanks very much, first of all, for this chance to to present today. Um, some interesting talks already. I think I've seen a few different um, bits of um, synergy with this uh, with this talk as well. Um, and also, thanks very much to, to the team for changing my day um, last minute as well. I really appreciate that. Um, I want to just acknowledge I'm joining from Gurungai land. I pay respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the Gurungai people, past, present, and emerging. Um, so, this talk, uh, the origins of this talk are in a year I spent studying philosophy at university, um, and then a pivot. Um, which ended with me um, studying experimental psychology and a PhD in human factors psychology. So this this talk really is at that intersection of those two experiences. Um, it's, it's my own take for, um, uh, on, on these topics. Um, there's um, various ways of interpreting some of this um, stuff, but um, I, I hope you will kind of come along for the ride. Um, there's a lot of theories and concepts as well uh, that I'm going to introduce. I have included a, a double slide reference guide at the end of the um, of the uh, uh, presentation. Um, I can share that out with people as well. So what we're going to cover, and um, as I say, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey um, in this talk. Um, we're going to start back in time, um, thinking about philosophical um, some philosophical ideas that really do underpin um, what user experience has become today. Um, we're going to then uh, think about the. The actual experience of being a UX researcher today, um, and then we're going to take a bit of time in the second half to, to explore a couple of um, philosophical ideas in a bit more depth. So one is uh, on ph- phenomenological experience, and the other is a quite, quite big, um, the authentic lived experience. And finally, we'll think about laddering this, um, what we've learned, up to, to our own experience. So let's begin. Um, So, this story begins um, in uh, the 1870s, in fact, um, when the first experimental psychology lab was founded, Um, and in fact, that happened twice. So, in the 1870s, in the United States, there was a philosopher called William James, um, and he um, had some interesting ideas about how experiences are, are, are felt experienced. He wanted to set up a laboratory in this new discipline uh, called psychology. Um, remembering he's a philosopher, of course. So he, he wanted to explore um, how sounds are, are experienced and, um, and the, the actual sort of experience that people ha- um, have when they're going through um, listening to things um, at a very similar time. In in Germany, as it was then, um, we there, there was a philosopher Wilhelm Wundt um, who was at the University of Leipzig, and he was much more interested in. Uh, he set up a laboratory looking at physiological psychology, so reactions, thresholds, the the way physiology can influence um, the way we think. So these two um, these two uh, people they they sound quite different in their approaches, but they in fact did have Um, some shared understanding or shared philosophies that underpinned where they were coming from. Um, So we're going to have a quick look at a couple of philosophical ideas. But first of all, um, I thought these uh, slightly stern looking faces were were a bit much. So here's the Wills um, who are going to be our guide for the the first part of this talk. Um, Thanks to OpenPeeps, if, if no one's uh, heard of that before. OpenPeeps is a great resource for creating um, these kind of uh, caricatures. So the, this first idea, um, maybe we've heard of empiricism as, as an approach. and We've talked about empirical data, uh, data which is um, you know, uh, evidence which is uh, collected through the senses, for example. But these, these two, uh, the wills, they talk about um, radical empiricism and what that means um, is that the um, the, the perception um, of, of the world is more than just a kind of stream of incoming data. Um, it's a stream of conscious experience. Um, and we, we interpret that conscious experience um, by giving a reference to existing memories and we uh, create causal relationships between the, those existing memories and those experiences, those in, inputs that we're um, kind of uh, receiving um, in, interesting here um, William James actually coined the term stream of consciousness and he used that uh, approach in in, um, in in various pieces of work that he did so in my kind of um, rough terms, we know things because we experience them through our senses and we link them causally uh, to each other in the things we know um, already so that's um, at one part of this and I think the interesting um, points here are that um and to quote, uh, again, William James here, we have every right to speak of experience as subjective and objective, both at once. So the objective part is the incoming data, and then the subjective part is linking that, um, that data um, to kind of our memories and our, our, our other aspects that we, we bring with us. Um, we'll come back to this idea later. Um, and a second um, philosophical approach that these share is pragmatism. I think probably as UXers, as design researchers, um, this this word really does ring true for for our daily life, really. But in a philosophical sense, uh, pragmatism is the idea that, um, the theory that ideas can never be completely proven true or false. Uh, We should consider how useful an idea is, how practical, productive. So, yeah, we we can never be 100% sure, um, but that's okay, um, as long as what we uh, know is useful. So those are two kind of um, interesting starting points from from uh, from the and um, I, I now want to just track. Um, we're going to do a, a very rough, very quick um, tracking through um, from the late 19th century to kind of present day um, to see how we have got to this the, um, the the discipline of user experience, as it were. Um, so. Some interesting things happened um, in the US and in the European kind of um, psychology tradition as they, as they emerged. Um, um, theories and ideas started to get a bit more concrete. Behaviorism um, was um, uh, saw um, people start to talk about conditioning and uh, the, the reinforcing of positive and negative behaviors, um, these kind of um, areas, which we're probably familiar with. In the European tradition, the Gestalt psychologists um, started to um, explore these ideas of uh, grouping and um, consistency and um, hopefully very familiar concepts, again, from our own user experience um, experiences. Um, What's actually interesting here is these were a big pushback against the the philosophies of, of the wills, really, in both cases, behaviorism um, really kind of pushed back against that experiential um, mode, and also the um, uh, the Gestalt theorists were, were um, kind of drawing a line under where um, where Wilhelm had got to. And um, so that um, in in the mid to late 20th century, we see we see cognitive psychology kind of start to bring together some of these different learnings, or or um, become. Uh, more familiar with um with with the ways that people are, are thinking around uh, the human brain um, and with cognitive psychology comes the interest in human information processing and that kind of starts to lead to um, people thinking about the human uh, the brain as as a as a computer these kind of analogies and then um finally the we we start to see. Um people start um, talking about human computer interaction and some of the, uh, the the kind of more typical stuff we know as ux today so ux today um obviously we we have a a rich history already in the last twenty uh, thirty years of of different theories methods um from the very early you know earlier works in, in the early 2000s. um Jesse James Garrett, of course through to some great work being done today, for example, Humanities centered thinking about that kind of um, critical UX. Um, so this is, a, you know, it sounds like we've got a, a great picture, an interesting, um, uh, rich uh, dialogue um, being had. Let's take a little bit more time to look at um, today's experience. And... Again, um, we might say, uh, as researchers today, we we know, um, you know, we're probably very familiar with um, being able to go to um, a selection of methods, qualitative or quantitative, um, and we can select methods if we're thinking about um, user behaviours or user attitudes, for example. Very um, familiar stuff. There are now frameworks as to how to introduce um, UX or user research into an organisation. And there are even full um full bone articles about um which um, platforms and uh, which of these methods um should be used in um different phases of the research and design process uh, and you know which uh, which is a, it's an interesting point in itself because um as we've transitioned where has that kind of like philosophical um, edge gone in in the journey um so if we spend about five minutes on uh, LinkedIn, we do get a different picture. Um, so this is, this, for example, I had a quick look on LinkedIn um, about a week ago, and there's this event, uh, how to get UX buy-in. Obviously it's still something that's very familiar, um, but, but the, the uh, actual um, uh, advert for it said, many companies design for their users without speaking to them, leading to frustrating products. It's still a huge problem that, that people just simply aren't actually speaking to their own customers. Um, another example, and um, this, uh, this popped up in, on LinkedIn a while back, and I, I immediately thought this is a really interesting um, prioritization method. Um, we can see here if there's high or low risk or if there's high or low um, problem clarity, um, we, we might think to take different approaches, a, a research-heavy approach or design-heavy, etc., and um, this is great. And um, but then I read uh, uh, the medium article by uh, Jeanette Fuchella, who posted this originally. And the very start of it really is like researchers are wildly under resourced, and we have to balance the um, as we've heard earlier today as well this idea of democratizing practice versus taking on strategic pro- uh, projects. And how, how can we be sure that, um, you know, when we do democratize, that those the, 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 the folks that we um, work with have that same kind of level of um, knowledge or balance that we um, expect. And a third example here um, by um, uh, UX re- researcher Darren Hood, or UX at Darren Hood, um, overcoming UX misdirection. And he's written a lot on um, similar kinds of topics. Um, but this, this article um, really for kind of people just starting in the, uh, in the world of UX really uh, it starts to kind of like drill down in and these these bullet points are literally the starting point of an article like rather than the the article itself really um a a really rich kind of set of different um ideas through there but um there still still seems to be this kind of sense of confusion and people not um being on the same page so i'm going to just quickly come back to this idea because i want to develop um, our thinking a little bit more and draw back to some of those philosophical thoughts that we had um, earlier on. So if we remove those methods, and I'm um, I'm going to work heavily from uh, Sam Ladner's mixed methods book here, um, and we can start to think about behaviours and um, uh, these different dimensions in terms of empirically observed qualities. Um, and perceived qualities. So if something is a qualitative behaviour, um, Sam Lavner references it as a, a, an empirically observed quality, which, for example, is a detailed observation of what happened, or arguably um, the, the pure video uh, recording of a, a research session could be in that that, that sense. Um, perceived qualities, for example, um, are stories or uh, describing an experience. Um, Then we also have these ideas of um, empirically observed quantities. Um, So these are like device analytics, eye movements, maybe. It could be uh, click locations on the screen. Um, And then perceived quantities. And this is an interesting one where people often don't think in the same way. Um, Satisfaction, look at scale uh, ratings, NPS, are actually... um, much more on this side. They're not they're not um associated with actual behaviors, they're they're the attitudes. Or if we want, uh, we can even go as far as to say these are that 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 balance of the subjective and the objective that, that William James um, was talking about when he's when he summed up what our experience is. So um having this this overarching framing um starts to help us to see there's you know we, we don't always necessarily um work in the area or in the, the modality that we think we are to move um one more um slide to just kind of develop this a bit more and again this heavily um uh, builds on sam ladner's work um so if we start to think about quantitative and qualitative research um in terms of the um the, why they're used and what the philosophical underpinning is um, just, we can see that quantitative research is it's deductive. It's um, used to test a the theory and to validate things. So by deductive, we it, we mean we have the data set and we no, don't go beyond that data set. We only use what's within that data set to find out and explore the world. Um, this might include um, uh, task-based hypothesis testing and statistical analyses, for example. And just to um, bring in a little bit of that philosophical side, the, the underpinning theories of knowledge and existence, which is the epistemology and the ontology, in philosophy speak. So, underpinning uh, the quantitative side of things is like a natural sciences positivist approach, um, as it's as it's called, um, and objectivism, this idea that we are only uh, dealing with objective truths. Um, on the flip side, we have the quali- uh, qualitative. Um, so qualitative um, research is inductive that means it goes out beyond the data set itself it it extrapolates to new points it's used to generate theory and to discover things and this could include contextual research or ethnographic research and grounded theory and and, and even a a simple affinity map could be part of building this bigger theory or bigger um, understanding of the world and the the interesting part here is um the Underpinning of this is uh, a, a two, two areas called interpretivism and constructivism. So constructivism um, is, uh, it actually stems from the, some um, psychology uh, work from the 1960s. A, um, a developmental psychologist, Piaget, came up um, uh, with the, the theory that um, children, when they're learning about the world, they explore the world. And they are actively constructing their understanding of the world um, and a constructivist philosophy in this sense when we think about science um, states that the science um, all science is actually still constructed um, as a social construct in the same sense it, it doesn't sit outside as a, some kind of special set of knowledge um, and so we can explore uh, by, um, by the, this method of interpretation and constructing our um, understanding of the world um, and luckily I, I think there's a couple of interesting points here as well how often do we actually get asked to um, test the theory or validate a bit of um, uh, an idea from from our stakeholders and yeah run a few um, co- uh, customer interviews or something like that and this is a bit of a category error, really, in, in philosophical terms. We're, we're being asked to do something which um, is in one layer. of. Uh, we should be using quantitative approaches. But we're often asked, or we end up only being able to maybe speak to a few people or do something which is more qualitative. Um, so there's a mismatch and a misalignment um, sometimes in the way we approach it. Um, I think that in part, um, you know, a lot of the, that theoretical um, underpinning that came from the psychology um, actually leads itself to the quantitative, the, to the natural sciences approach. Um, very fortunately, um, research, um, UX today is um, much more diverse. Um, thankfully, we have colleagues and you know research friends across the, the spectrum of different social sciences, anthropology, et cetera. And we do start to um, really explore this area um, of qualitative, of interpretivist and constructivist um, more fully. Um, so that's um, the intro uh, of these different ideas. Um, and I want to now just take a little bit of time to explore two more ideas in a bit more depth that really help us to develop our thinking in, in a qualitative interpretivist and constructivist uh, kind of mindset. So the next idea um, the, the next part we're going to think about phenomenological experience um, and we are just going to think about the ideas of one one uh, person. Uh, in the 1970s, so we're starting to track back again uh, in time, the 1970s uh, Thomas Nagel. Asked what seems like a quite a simple question: What is it like to be a bat? While on the surface, this uh, might appear to be quite a straightforward question. You know, we go, okay, you know, the bats a, a mammal that flies. Um, you know, we, we know it's active in the night, I guess. Um, what, what more do we know? I, you know, we might start to think about how um, a bat. Uh, locates its prey or makes its way around the world, uh, you know, we know it makes some kind of vocalisations and um, the um, it, it does some of these kind of like things that we're kind of vaguely familiar with um, and we can even like drill in as far as to start to kind of Read, you know, uh, read the neural signals of the bat and um, uh, understand the exact vocalizations necessary for it to um, fly and the the, the exact wing uh, pressure and the, the all of these kind of fine, fine details. So it does seem like we have a fairly good understanding of um, what it is to be a bat. But in fact, um, maybe I would argue um, we only have that understanding um, of what it would be like for us to be a bat we don't know what it is like for the bat to be a bat and we can never truly know that um because we um we, we will never have those same shared experiences being able to um echolocate being able to fly um you know uh, working in the you know uh, through the night in, in the, the same way that uh, bats do um and this is it's quite a big Position to take, um, and you know, if we really want to extrapolate and explore this even more deeply, where does that leave our sense of empathy when we when we explore um, explore our own research? When we say empathy um, as being kind of a primary route to understanding our users, for example, can we ever truly know what it is to be within the systemic layers of any one of our users um, in the in the same sense? Well. There's a still a glimmer of um, kind of philosophical light here because um, we might also say, but does, the, does a bat actually know what it is to be a bat? Does a bat have this, the concepts of echolocation? Does a bat have any of these different um, ideas that we have labelled it and put upon the bat? Um, that, I mean, the answer is probably likely no, but in relation to our, our fellow humans and our user base and our customers, those people, those folks do have that sense of what it is to be them and to be um, uh, to be able to kind of share that knowledge. So we do, unlike the bats, we do have some access. We can go, we can speak to people. Um, and so the kinds of ways we might want to then explore, um, instead of look, uh, looking to assume we can fully feel the exact things our customers are feeling, uh, we might want to explore their phenomenological experiences. Um, from my own perspective, uh, this is a, a bit of a joke, but uh, what is it to be a Jira user, for example, um, coming from Atlassian, The uh, you know it appears that um, being a, a Jira user involves uh, a, a sense of humour at, at, at the very least. Um, but if we really want to dig deeper into um, this actual that's the sense of what um, uh, a, a person's phenomenological experience is we can start sh- for sure with the data we can use all of that interesting uh, analytics we can ask our uh, market research colleagues etc this is this paints um you know a, pi- a picture but we need to go to people we need to speak to people but i think the the m- most authentic thing we can do here is again uh, leaning into some of the Things we've heard about earlier, co-create with people, co-create with our users. This is this really brings in their true phenomenological experience, um, and and that that will really be able to um, start to, to to put that at the forefront. And I think another uh, thing worth mentioning here is that once we have the sense of that experience, uh, we should be then sharing it um, with our stakeholders. Um, for example, exposure hours, i.e. Um, ensuring your stakeholders have two hours um, of observation of true research um, uh, every six weeks at the very minimum, um, it, it's been well established. Um, but like maybe we should go beyond that that kind of lab-based setting and um, try to seek two, two hours of exposure to the phenomenological experience of being a customer in their place, uh, being a user in, in wherever where they do use our products. Um, and it's it's interesting here that um, the first article being written in two thousand eleven by twenty nineteen Forbes is also actually expressing that this is a a route um, exposure to hours are a route to um, um, business success. Um, and a final point here on um, on this area, I think the biggest um, factor that we, we need to uh, take into account is while we um, we might. Um, try using voiceover on our computer, for example, or we might try uh, blocking our vision. We can never truly know the, um, the lived experience of people with assistive technology needs or access needs. The only true way we really uh, can find out is by speaking to the to the folks um, running the research that actually does help us to build a more accessible and more um, understanding kind of and um, framing for the world. So. Moving back one more time, um, I want to just uh, fi- finally introduce a, another um, philosophy, which introduces this idea of authentic lived experience. We're going way back again now. We're actually going back to the 1890s, um, kind of around the time we, we um, started. Uh, a French philosopher by the name of Henri Bergson, he, um, he was a um, a contemporary of William James, and they were pen pals. Interestingly enough, and he influenced um, some of that um, early thinking of William James. And one of one of Bergson's uh, ideas was about the idea of time. What is time? Um, you know, he he put forward um, time is you know we, we kind of tend to think of time as being quantitative um, and what he called spatialized. So we think of the blocks of the time moving up on the, on a clock. We think of blocks of time in the week. Um, we, we see them in these kind of spatial contexts um, and the calendar in the month. And even we might go as far as um, to say those seasons in the year um, are those blocks of time. Um, and and you know, in this sense, time is calibrated. Um, a second in uh, one place is the same as a second in another place. It's very powerful and it's useful to be able to engineer things, to have that shared sense. Um, but for Bergson, this sense of time is also artificial. We don't truly live and experience through the world um, in this kind of compartmentalized way. So he introduces a new idea, which is duration. And duration is fluid. It's continuous. It's immeasurable. It's it's authentic. It's the way we glide through our, our lived experience. We don't have these tiny little blocks of experience. Um, we, we are continuity. Um, and he uses this term, a qualitative multiplicity. Um, time isn't quantitative, or duration, I should say, isn't quantitative. It's, it's qualitative. Um, and it's without beginning or, or end, in this sense. It's, it's big. It's, um, it's a way of kind of really... Um, Decoupling from the um, from the, the way we tr- usually understand time, um, and for Bergson also this this takes some kind of introspection. He he talks about things like um, types of meditation to 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 reach this understanding of being in the now. Let's say. Um, so this, uh, there's a lot of different ways that this may, you know, we could use and, and interpret this. But um, I think one of them is the um, this idea that um, we are living through this um, continuity. Um, we feel like we're making a lot of different choices. Um, but um, in fact, we um, come through this line um, into the, the point where we are today Um we actually um, forget all of those different options that we had along the way. There's almost a near infinite number of decisions that we had. Um, that's uh, effectively you know, Bergson's qualitative multiplicity of different kind of branches. Um, and we're also quite hard on ourselves sometimes for making the wrong choice. But a Berg- Bergsonian understanding might uh, lead us towards a more compassionate understanding as we move through time uh, making these decisions. Another example, um, just being at Atlassian, um, these icons represent different products we make. And we have, it's been talked about um, before as well, um, we have all of these different teams that work um, often independently or semi-independently on these different things. But if we start to think about the um, duration and the fluid nature of um, experience of of our customers, then we, we might start to think about one person picks up Trello, and then that leads to um, picking up another uh, product, and it flows through the uh, through the business as different people see different types of value. It's it's part of a bigger systemic view of duration, and we need to take back uh, step back and take this viewpoint sometimes. And f- then finally, um, we also have lived through some very um, strange times, and we're living through more strange times. Um, in the, the, the conversation uh, website, they, they actually um, tapped into uh, Bergsonian, a time uh, as a concept and to help us explain um, how during COVID time slowed down at some points and sped up. We, we, we're not, you know, we're living through this fluid um, uh, world of um, change. We're not kind of seeing everything in that compartmentalised and calibrated way um when when we're actually experiencing um these kind of um events. Uh, and again, having this understanding can help us to be compassionate towards ourselves. Um, as we change the ways that we work, it's, it's amazing to um, think about companies that can like n- now um, offer you know both flexible uh, working from where we where we choose to work, but also the nature of work is much less um uh, about doing a 9 to 5 job and much more about reaching particular outcomes um across uh, an, an expanse um and so you know really breaking down that um that traditional sense of of time and moving into that duration sense and finally here um the, uh, the this book um designed for real life this is great starts to develop these ideas of um compassionate ux for example And it it does, in many ways, speak to um, this idea of living through uh, duration and taking our our projects and our our pieces of work outside um, the the typical siloed approach. Um, Challenging our vision um, is one part of it. Um, Not just having a a vision that we um, adhere to, but continuously challenging it. Um, Testing the edges and and not just the averages, Um, again, seeing that bigger picture, that outside of view, um, and the the system as a whole. So just to close, um, we've gone through a lot. And uh, just to repeat, there are a couple of pages and slides of um, references um, for anyone who uh, wants to have a look. Um, I want to just take this moment to think about what we've gone through. So we learned a bit about um, some some philosophical ideas to start with. then we started to see, like, our, our UX um, research world today, uh, we maybe saw ourselves as being a bit sympathetic towards that, that p- particular piece of um, that particular world that we are living in. We started to develop this uh, idea of empathy and also challenge, in some senses, where, um, how far empathy can take us. Um, and more importantly, for, for me at least, um, we've kind of started to develop this idea of compassion—compassion compassion for ourselves, compassion for our community, and and the world at large—and uh, it's you know th- this is where we can I think really make an impact. Hopefully, this um, this um, ladder is familiar. It's 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 um, starting to become more more um, familiar, and the idea that compassion uh, is the thing that actually moves us to help someone—I think is a really powerful um, uh, take-home here. So just. Just to close with a bit of Buddhist philosophy, in fact. Uh, So Thukton Jinpa um, is the Dalai Lama's principal English translator. Um, He has this um, course which posits uh, a four-step process towards compassion. And it does speak in some ways to some of what we've um, just learnt. So uh, we need an awareness of the true nature of suffering. Um, We have a sensitive concern related to being emotionally moved by suffering. I wish to see the suffering relieved and then a wise responsiveness or readiness to help relieve that suffering. And while uh, there's so much going on in the world, I hope this talk has helped to uh, uh, ignite a little bit of wise responsiveness in all of you today. Thanks very much.